so I'm seated here inside a chapel that is on top of uh, the Acro Corinth. This was built centuries after Paul was here, but it's a good spot to talk about several key things that we find in Corinthians. One of those is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, in a chapter that is um, often misinterpreted, that can be very confusing, um, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church this, Now, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off. She should cover her head. So this passage and the verses around it has often been misunderstood in one of two ways. Um, either people say, well, here's what the Word of God says, and so every woman should have her head covered in church, and every man should not have his head covered. That's one misunderstanding. The other misunderstanding is to say, look, we don't practice this. Here's what the Bible says. We do not follow this in church. Therefore, why do we follow anything else? And so if we do not follow this, then how can you tell me that anything else in the Bible should be followed? Both of those have misunderstood the context of what Paul was writing to the Corinthians. So again, remember the temple prostitutes. They worked in the temple of Aphrodite. They came down into the city square every day to offer their services. One of the ways that they were identified as temple prostitutes was they had their heads shaved. And because their heads were shaved, they were known for what they did. Well, then some became followers of Christ. They came out of that profession. They came out of serving in that temple. Now they were part of the church. But their heads had been shaved, and it took a long time for their hair to grow back. And so Paul wanted the women in the church to cover their heads, to say, you're all equal. In the eyes of God, whether you were working in the temple as a prostitute or you were someone who came from high society, someone who came from a, a more moral background, we are all equal in the eyes of God. Because of what Jesus did for us, we're all at the same level. Therefore, women, cover your head. Some of the women in the church wanted their heads uncovered to show off their hair. In Corinth, it was a big deal for women to show off their hair. We have found um, artifacts of figurines that were decorative of women, figures of women, and they all had their heads uncovered to show off their hair, to say, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of the temple prostitutes. In the church, the same attitude persisted. And so women wanted to wear their heads uncovered to say, well, that, that's not a profession I served in. And so Paul here says, no, everyone cover your hair so that we're all equal. And, and he gives the women a choice. He says, well, you don't have to cover your hair. You can just shave it off. Well, they wouldn't do that because that was disgraceful. And so Paul's attitude here was not, women, I want you to be submissive. His attitude here was, we want to treat everyone with love. The other thing that we find in this passage is where Paul says that every man... Um, should have his head uncovered. 
Um, he, he's mixing two things here that really are not related. Paul had this conflict with the Jews in the synagogue, and they, they took Paul and they brought him before uh, the proconsul uh, there in the Agora. Um, and Paul, after that experience, had a break with the Jewish population. Uh, before this, he had said, you know, I, I'm going to go into the synagogue. I'm going to preach to the Jews in the synagogue. And he essentially shakes the dust off his feet and says, now I'm turning my attention to the Gentiles. And here in Corinth, we see this break um, where Paul turns his attention um, to the Greek world and begins to say, in the church, we need to separate ourselves from those who are Jewish. Now, we need a separate identity. So in the synagogue, when they would worship, the men would wear the yarmulke. Their head would be covered when they prayed, when they preached, when they prophesied. And Paul says, no, in the church, we're not doing that. And so a man should have his head uncovered. So women, for cultural reasons, you need to have your head covered. So that we're all on the same, same level. And men, because we are separate, we have a separate identity from those who are in the synagogue, we need to have our heads uncovered. Thank you so much for being here. If you have been a part of North Lake Church, you know that we have been in a series for a good while on the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and I've talked about how this was originally a letter uh, written by a guy named Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. We started this series on Easter Sunday earlier this year, and my intention was to com uh, complete this series at the end of this month. Um, then this thing called COVID hit, and we had to take a couple of breaks, and we um, addressed some issues like, hey, God is still in control, even in the midst of a pandemic. And basically, the reason I'm telling you this is we will not finish this uh, before November is over. However, I would like to get through this series before Jesus comes back. <laughs> and so I am not talking about the first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's why we showed you the video. This is a very confusing passage. It's a debated passage. However, when you place it in the cultural context of what was happening in Corinth, it's clear that Paul was not putting legalistic requirements upon uh, women or men. What he was saying was, we need to act out of love for one another. He was concerned about divisions in the church and wanted the church to be unified. The second half of 1 Corinthians 11 deals with division again, but this time it deals with division centered around this thing that we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is the longest passage in the New Testament dealing with the Lord's Supper. In fact, there are only three other passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they simply tell the story of what Jesus did in the context of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is our only instructional passage, and it is a corrective passage where they were abusing the Lord's Supper. So Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, 
seeks to correct those abuses. We'll look at that in just a second. Before we do, let's start with a few definitions. So if you grew up in a Baptist church or a non-denominational church or some other denominations, what we are celebrating today, you refer to as the Lord's Supper. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, um, a, um, an Episcopal church, a few other denominations, you called it Holy Communion. If you grew up in a Catholic church, you refer to it as the Holy Eucharist. These are terms that all refer to the same thing. In fact, throughout this message today, I will call it the Lord's Supper. But if your tradition was different and you called it something else, just insert your phrase and we'll all be on the same page. Um, the other thing that you need to know is that the Lord's Supper was given to us by Jesus originally in the context of what is called a Seder service. The Seder service was the central meal in a celebration of the Jewish people called the Passover. The Passover remembered events that happened 1,400 years before Christ came. When the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, God raised up a man named Moses to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt and say, it's time to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh said, nope, got free slave labor. I'm not letting them go. And so God sent plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians to convince the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. The final plague and the one that ultimately convinced Pharaoh was God sending the death angel throughout Egypt to kill the firstborn son of every family. Before that night, God instructed the Israelites to take a lamb, to kill that lamb, to take the blood of that lamb, and to paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their homes. And that night, when the death angel came into Egypt, any home that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over those homes. Therefore, those children would live, and all the Egyptian sons died. Passover remembered that event. It remembered the events of what we call the Exodus. Every year, they would celebrate the Passover, and the central meal in the Passover is was called a Seder meal. It's not a meal where they just get together and eat and talk. They follow a prescribed order to the meal where they remember the events of the Passover. In that meal, they remember the events and they remember as well the Passover lamb whose blood was shed to save the Israelites. At that point in the meal, Jesus stopped and he took bread and he said, this bread represents my body that will be broken for you. And he took the cup that pointed specifically to the blood of the Passover lamb and he said, this cup represents my blood which, was, which will be shed for you just as the children of Israel were saved from death, so my blood will save people from death. Now this was mind-blowing, eye-opening for the apostles who that night celebrated this with Jesus. In the next few hours, Jesus would be arrested, and the next day he would be placed on the cross, and there he would die, and three days later he would be raised from the dead. And at that moment, it all clicked for them. They got it, that this 1,400-year celebration was ultimately pointing to Jesus and his sacrifice, not just for the children of Israel, but for the sins of the world. Jesus, in the context of that meal, said, 
when you do this, when you celebrate this, do it in remembrance of me. Well, what was this? This was the Seder meal. This was that Passover celebration, which meant the next year when the apostles got together and they celebrated the Jewish Passover, they stopped at that point in the meal and said, hey, this is really about Jesus. And then the next year, and the next year, and the next year. Now, I'll tell you all that for this reason. The early church, the Jerusalem church, the OG church, celebrated the Passover, uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper once a year at the Passover. That was it. That's when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. That's when Jesus gave them the Lord's Supper in the context of that celebration. Now, this is just a guess, but I'm, I'm going to say for 15 years or so, that's how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. But then it changed. Then it shifted. And so the early church from 50 AD through, I don't know, at some point, celebrated it more frequently at what, was, what were called love feasts. They would gather more often for full meals for these celebrations where they would eat, they would drink together, and they, in that context, would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, how do we, how do we know this? Well, a large part of it is because of the passage that, that we're going to read today, and there's some other passages that we'll come back to in just a minute. Now, why did they do this? Why did they make this transition from once a year at Passover to more frequently at these love feasts? Well, as you heard about in the video earlier, there was this break where Christianity took its own identity. It was no longer just part of the Jewish faith. It had its own identity. And those Greeks who followed Christ didn't celebrate the Passover. That was not part of their tradition. In fact, if you're in here, unless you're Jewish, you probably don't celebrate Passover. And so they could not celebrate the Lord's Supper in the context of this Jewish festival they did not celebrate. So they began to have these meals where they would celebrate the Lord's Supper in the context of that meal. Well, unfortunately, there were a lot of abuses. There were a lot of problems. We're going to read about those today. And because of all the problems, churches changed how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. So at some point, who knows when... To the present day, it is celebrated as part of worship gatherings. My guess is, regardless of your tradition, if you grew up in a church, been Roman Catholic, it could have been Orthodox, it could have been Charismatic, it could have been non-denominational, my guess is, is that you celebrate the Lord's Supper the way we're celebrating it today, in the context of a worship service you more than likely did not celebrate it in a love feast. You more than likely did not celebrate it just once a year at Passover. Why? Why do you celebrate it that way? Why did you celebrate it that way? Because of the passage we're going to read today. So what were the abuses? The passage, by the way, that we're reading today, they abused it. No one wanted to be guilty of abusing the Lord's Supper the way the Corinthians did, and that's why we celebrate it this way. Okay, so what were those abuses? That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll start with verse 17. Paul wrote this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. 
And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have, have God's approval. Okay, stop there. Paul begins this sex, section by saying, in the following matter, I have zero praise for you. Now, this is not how you're supposed to do it, right? When you're going to criticize someone, what's the rule? You start with a compliment, you start with praise, then you move to the criticism. Like if your teenager brings home a really bad report card, you start with, hey, you know, it's, it's good that you're passing P.E. However, now let's talk about the F's and all the other subjects. We need to correct something here. Paul, throughout his letter to the Corinthians, would use this method. He would say, let me praise you for what you're doing with this, but you need to change this. Throughout the letter, except here. In this matter, he says, hey, there is no praise at all that I can give you. You guys have gotten it so wrong. You've abused the Lord's Supper so badly that there is nothing positive that I can say at all about your practice of the Lord's Supper. So how are they abusing it? Verse 20. Here's what we read. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Okay, again, what we talked about earlier. First Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper at Passover. Then it transitioned to these love feasts. Now, how do we know that? Partly because of this passage and what we read today. However, there are other references to, in particular, in the New Testament to these love feasts. Uh, in both of these, the references are to those who are doing harm to the church, but doing so in the context of these love feasts. Um, one is from 2 Peter. It refers to false prophets in the church. It says they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. If you've got a paper Bible, I bet you've got a footnote there. Look at the bottom. It says, or in their love feast with you. Peter was addressing churches that were having love feasts where they celebrated the Lord's Supper. The other reference comes from the little book of Jude. Jude says this, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. So evidently, these love feasts were taking place in churches outside of Corinth as well. And based on what we know in this particular chapter, these were love feasts were being abused and the Lord's Supper was not being practiced in the way that it should have been practiced. Instead, they were getting together and having these full meals and not doing what they were supposed to do. So what was the issue? What was the problem in Corinth? Why were some of them gathering together and eating while others remained hungry. Here's what you have to keep in mind. In the church, there were those who were wealthy and there were those who were poor. We read about individuals who were wealthy and we know that they had individuals in the church who were poor. In that day, those who were poor served as servants or slaves. 
And in that day, if someone was a poor, working-class individual, they did not get a day off. There was no such thing as a paid holiday. There was no such thing as a day off during the week. There were no such things as labor unions. There were no uh, minimum wages back then. There were no limits to the number of hours that you worked. If you wanted to eat that day or the next day, you worked. If you were poor, you worked and you worked and you worked until you died. That's just how it was. There were the wealthy and there were the poor. The middle class really wasn't in existence. Also in the church, there were those who were wealthy. Those who were wealthy either did not work or they controlled their schedules in a way where they could get away from work, where they could take a day off from work. So here's what was happening in Corinth. They would say, as a church, we need to have a love feast. In that love feast, we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. But let's have a full meal. We'll do this together as a church, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Great, let's do that. When should we do it? Well, let's do it at 6 o'clock on Sunday. All right, that's great. Now, remember, they had no church building, so where do you gather? Where do you get together to do this? In someone's home. Whose home do you gather in? Well, someone who has a large enough home for the church to gather. And so a wealthy individual in the church would have the love feast in their home and all of the people who were wealthy who could control their schedule would show up in the home for the love feast. All of the people who were poor, who were slaves or servants, what did they do? They were having to serve. They were having to serve their boss. They were having to serve dinner to the family that they worked for. They could not control their schedule. So all the wealthy people show up They have all of this food. They have all of this drink. And by the time the poor people show up, the food is gone. And all the people in the church are kind of drunk. They show up and there's nothing left for them. Here's what Paul said about that. When you get together, this is not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what it is, but it's not the Lord's Supper. For your eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. I mean, this is just the wealthy in the church getting together, and you guys are having this big meal together. This is not worship. This is just you guys getting together and eating. As a result, one person remains hungry, the the working class individual who showed up late, while another gets drunk. You're at the meal, you're drinking wine, they show up, you're drunk, and they're starving. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God, by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So this is where Paul gets into the corrective part of the passage. Here's what you're doing wrong. Now let me talk about the way this should be practiced. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so there are basically three historical views about what this passage means. Uh, The first view is this. It is called transubstantiation. And this is the view of the Catholic Church. And in this view, they take the words of Jesus here literally. When Jesus said, this is my body, 
and this is my blood. They say the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus in the context of the Lord's Supper. In fact, they say when the priest prays a prayer over the elements at that moment, the physical properties of the bread and of the wine change to the body and the blood of Christ. That's one view. The other view is called consubstantiation. Uh, in this view, the elements the bo- uh, become, uh, I'm sorry, the elements of Jesus, the body and the blood are present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. And what they say is this, the physical properties of the bread and the wine do not transform into the body and blood of Jesus, but somehow in a mystical way, they contain the body and the blood of Jesus. And this is the phrase I use. It is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. This is it's hard for us to get our brains around this, this concept. The best illustration is that of a sponge. A sponge is a sponge, but if you take the sponge and you fill it with water, even though it's still a sponge, we would say that in, with, and under the sponge, there is water. That's sort of the view here that, yes, the physical properties remain bread and wine, but in a mystical way, they contain the body and blood of Jesus. And then the third view, and this is the view that we as a church hold, is called representation. The bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ. And and here's the way that we view it, that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was saying, I am identifying here with this part of the Seder meal. And so later when you take this, what you're doing is you're taking a representation of my body and my blood, my sacrifice for you. We would say it something like this. If you and I were riding, riding in a car together or going down the road and we're listening to the radio and all of a sudden your favorite song comes on and you leaned over and you said, hey, turn it up. This is my song. Well, you wouldn't mean that you literally wrote the song or that you own the rights to the song. What do you mean? You mean, I love this song. I'm identifying with this song. That's what Jesus meant in this passage. He was identifying himself with this part of the Seder meal and then saying, in the future, I want you to do this and take this in remembrance of me so that you're identifying with me. Okay, so... Then he concludes with verse 27. Here's what he wrote. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged by the Lord in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So here, Paul was simply saying this, this is such an abuse of the Lord's Supper that you as a church are coming under God's judgment. And many of you have abused it in such an awful way that you've become sick. And some of you have fallen asleep, which is the New Testament word for died. And you you need to understand, God takes this so seriously and your abuse is so bad that God is judging you for what you have done. 
And then he concludes this way with very practical advice. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. So Paul here makes it very clear that celebrating the Lord's Supper is not about satisfying your bellies. In fact, if you woke up this morning and you thought, hey, I think we're celebrating the Lord's Supper in church today. I'm not going to eat breakfast. I'll just eat when we get to church the Lord's Supper. I've got bad news for you. If you came hungry, you will leave hungry. What we will take today will not fill your belly. And and, and the, the cup, we use juice, but even if we use real wine, I promise you this little thimble cup of wine is not enough to get anybody drunk. I mean, even the lightest of lightweights, you are not going to get drunk off this wine. It's not about eating and drinking. It's not about satisfying your bellies. It's about satisfying your souls. It's it's about remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. And it is a holy, awesome moment when we take this together and we remember the forgiveness that we have in Christ. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I want to give you a couple of reminders before we do. One is we in our church practice what is called open communion, which means you do not have to be a member of this church to take the Lord's Supper with us. You do not have to be a member of any church to take the Lord's Supper with us. As long as you are a follower of Christ, as long as you have received Christ into your life and the grace forgiveness that comes from God, then we invite you to celebrate this with us. The other thing that I want to remind you of is that there is a part of this passage that has been misinterpreted so many times before. It's in verse 27 and 28. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And I have heard this passage preached before, and the pastor say something like, you need to examine yourself before you take this. Do not invite God's judgment on your life if you're not worthy to take this. If you're not living for the Lord, if you're out there living for yourself, then be careful. You will invite the Lord's judgment. You need to examine yourself. That is not what Paul was saying here. In fact, if you're here today and you say, I am I am unworthy to take the bread and take the cup. cup. Welcome to the club. We are all unworthy. Christ is the only one who is worthy. What Paul was condemning was taking this cup in an unworthy manner. Taking the bread in an unworthy manner. Taking it flippantly. Taking it very casually. Just checking it off the box. He says, don't do that. This is a serious time where we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And that because Jesus was willing to have his body broken. And because Jesus was willing to allow his blood to be shed. You and I, regardless of our sin, you and I can have forgiveness in Christ. And we can have freedom from sin. So if last week was a really bad week for you. I mean, you sinned big time. You blew it over and over. This is a perfect thing for you to take today. 
if last night you really, really blew it, and this morning you're, you're feeling badly, physically and spiritually because of what happened last night, this is a great time for you to be reminded of God's grace and forgiveness in your life. If you blew it this morning, big time, and you're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure that I should even take this, this is perfect for you. To be reminded that it's not about you, it's not about your righteousness, it's not about my righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf. So that in Christ, we are fully forgiven. Thank you so much, Jesus. We are fully forgiven. And we are freed from the power of sin in our lives. This is a perfect meal for you today. It will not satisfy your belly, but it will satisfy your soul. So you've got this packet on your chair. Uh, let me give you a few practical instructions. This is the first time we've done this in a gathering this way. But, you know, COVID, 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 here we are. Um, you've got this packet. At the top, there is bread. There are two uh, pieces of plastic you have to peel back. One is for the bread and one is for the juice. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you just a few moments of silence to talk to God. After those moments of silence, I will pray. And after that, we will take the bread and then you can peel the next one back and we will take the cup. And then we will sing our hearts out to Jesus about what he has done for us. So let's take just a few moments to pray.